If you would turn to the book of Hebrews again, no surprise there. I'll give you a hint, just about the next several Sundays it'll be Hebrews unless something special comes up. So chapter 1 of the book of Hebrews, we're going to start in verse 4 this morning. The interesting thing about this, it's really a behind-the-scenes look of more about the nature of Jesus. We, we call him God the Son, the God-man Jesus, and that's all true, but he's going to give us a little more detail here to say, let me show you a little more behind the scenes under the hood, so to speak, of who Jesus really is. So this morning, we'll continue on in this series of Hebrews, and it's a very deep book. It has a lot of deep mysteries, a lot of deep truths, wonderful truths, and my goal is to always just not go too deep because there's stuff I've been reading in this book. I'm thinking, wow, this is really crazy to think about. So if that happens to you, don't worry, we'll get through it together. So I hope I don't drown us in this book. But again, this letter is fascinating because if you've ever wanted to see more of the mysteries of Jesus, this letter is all about Jesus. Real quick, just to remind us of the context of this letter. The major theme of this whole book is really this. Jesus Christ is greater. Greater than what? Anything. Greater than who? Anyone. That's really his main point. Jesus Christ is far superior and far greater. His main application is sort of like this. He warns the readers of this letter to not drift away from staying faithful to Jesus. He warns them, don't fall away from Christ. And his reasons are because look how wonderful Jesus is. There's no one else you could follow greater than Jesus. There's nothing else you could commit your life to other than Jesus Christ. So his audience is warned to not succumb to the pressures that they're probably feeling in society to abandon their faith. It's possible he was writing to Jewish Christians, Christians who once were actual Jews. They followed the Old Testament law of Moses, but they converted to Christ. The problem for these people specifically is they would have been thrown out of a lot of their society. Family could have turned their back on them. They would have been kicked out from even going to certain buildings and places. There's records we have of in their family genealogies that are written down. Family could have erased their name from their genealogies. They're just so ashamed that some of these Jews could dare say that they're following this man, Jesus. So immense pressure that these people are under to give up and say, maybe it's just easier if I kind of go back to the way things were. My family accepted me more. My friends didn't pick at me. I didn't have all this pressure at all these places I go. I wasn't kicked out of certain places. I'm not able to not go to certain places. They could have said, it's easier to go back. The writer here is encouraging them over and over, don't think like that. Don't do that. Don't go back on your commitment to Christ because he's greater. Now, what he's going to do as we go throughout this letter, the reason I said it gets really deep, is he's writing to Christians that probably had to be very, very familiar with the Old Testament. So as we go through this, we're going to constantly be going back to the Old Testament because what he's going to do is keep making comparisons. He's going to make a comparison to Moses and Jesus and then the priest and Jesus and the law and Jesus. And he's going to constantly show Jesus is greater than any Old Testament person or concept. He's the point of the Old Testament. So he's making that case. Now, remember, here's what I'd like us to walk away with, sort of two main things from this letter. And I'll get more into the details here. But I hope as we go through this, my prayer actually really is that you and I get a deeper understanding of who Jesus really is. Now, here's why I say that. It's easy for us to say we know who Jesus is. He's our Lord and Savior. He's God's Son. 
he was born of the Virgin Mary. And those things are right. In one of the commentaries I was reading and studying for this, they said something like this, and it really stood out to me. The author of this commentary said, we as Christians are so quick to jump to the conclusions of thinking we know all that we need to know about who Jesus is. And we want to get to the stuff that he did for us, the works that Jesus did. We want to talk about the death on the cross and the resurrection and the new life he gives us. And those are great things. But the author made the point to say this, before we can really appreciate all that Jesus has done for us, it helps to understand a little bit more of who he really is, just his very nature. So that's really the point of this this morning. And then hopefully our application is if we appreciate Jesus more, then maybe, just maybe, we grow stronger in our faith and we're able to withstand any pressure that life throws at us to maybe just back off from being so committed to Jesus. Now, in our last sermon, we saw there's eight reasons to follow Jesus, or you could say eight reasons to not give up on Jesus. So that's just how he launched into the whole letter. He just started with saying, let me tell you eight amazing things about Jesus, how he's far greater. Real quick, they were just these. Jesus is God's ultimate word. Jesus is God's appointed heir. He's God's master builder. God's bright light. God's perfect picture. God's sustaining power. He's God's salvation plan. And the eighth one was he's God's reigning king. So that was last week. So we're moving on now to the next section. But I said all that because he picks right up after that to make his next point. So here's his point. It's going to be, you're going to be thinking, well, why do we care about this? Hopefully we'll answer that. His main point this morning is simply this. Jesus is greater than the angels. Jesus is superior than angels. And you may be thinking, how does that change my life? Well, we'll hopefully walk through that and see why. But that is his point. Jesus is greater than the angels. The reason for that, that he's going to say, Jesus has inherited a title. He's inherited a greater title than the angels could have ever dreamed of. He's called the Son of God. So that's what we're going to look at. Jesus is called the Son of God, and this makes him far greater than the angels. And this means he's worthy of any commitment and worship we could ever give him. If you would look at Hebrews chapter 1, I'd like to start in verse 4. And if you're able to stand out of the reading of God's word, please join me in standing for just a moment. And we'll read in verse 4. It says, having become, again talking about Jesus, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. We'll stop there and pray for a moment. Lord, thank you that we have personal copies of your written word in our language, our native language to read. And would you guide us now to understand these deep truths so that we could not just have our heads filled with knowledge, but that we'll appreciate from the heart more of who Jesus is and the wonderful glory that he has as your son. Thank you for everyone that made it out today. I ask that you just open the hearts and minds to listen and to learn. And would you bless everyone that was able to make it and be with those that couldn't for whatever reason. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. Now, why is the author talking about angels? Why in the world would that matter to a group of Christians that he needs to make the point to them, Jesus is greater than the angels? I want to be fair about this. We're not entirely sure. There's speculation. On the one hand, some Bible scholars believe that these Jewish Christians could have been dabbling a little bit in some known cults of their day. 
one of these cults was out there that believed in Jesus. It believed in a lot of the same good things, but they added something to it. They they kind of dabbled in angel worship. They they thought so highly of the angels they would worship them of sorts. So a little bit of a, a mini cult that was out there. It it could be that he's trying to warn them that they need to stop following that kind of stuff and they need to stop worshiping angels. That could be. But I want to be fair, I don't know that. But the other reality is, these readers, and this is the one I'm more convinced of why he might go into this, these readers are probably from a Jewish background. They are going to know the Old Testament front and backwards. And they are going to know how awesome that angels were. And that's okay, that's a good thing. Angels are wonderful creatures that God uses. But I believe his point to them is to try to make a case here. He's trying to set up a case that Jesus is greater than any of that stuff in the Old Testament. And what he's going to show them is these Jews familiar with the law of Moses loved the angels. Rightfully so, they had a lot of important things they did. But he's going to show them, you love the angels, that's great. But guess what? Jesus did a lot more important things than the angels did. I believe he's just trying to add another notch here to show why Jesus is far greater and far superior. In Deuteronomy 33, I'll just read these two, you don't have to turn there. But here's why I think he might be bringing up angels. The Old Testament actually uses the wording that the angels mediated the Old Covenant. If you remember at Mount Sinai, when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, the law, and he comes down the mountain and he tells Israel, here's the law of God and here's how we follow God. The Old Testament from that point on says that it was angels that God used to sort of preside over the relationship of God and Israel. Deuteronomy 33.2 says, He said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came from the midst of 10,000 holy ones. Now, holy ones is angels. So meaning at the Mount Sinai, the whole smoke and all the tablet stuff going on with the law, Deuteronomy says that there were angels involved in that. And then you have in Acts chapter 7, Stephen, who was killed for his faith, he gives a sermon before he's stoned to death for his faith in Christ. And he says in Acts 7.38, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him, meaning Moses, on Mount Sinai and to our fathers. So again, even Stephen acknowledges to these Jews, it was angels there with Moses at Mount Sinai. And then Stephen, this is what ended up getting him stoned in Acts 7.53, he ends with, And you received the law as ordained by angels, but yet you did not keep it. So, But the point is, Stephen acknowledged that law from the Old Testament came through God through angels. So they had a, a very high regard for angels. But he's going to show them, don't stop there though. It's not about angels. It's about Jesus Christ. Paul says in Colossians 2.18, Let no one keep defrauding you or tricking you, of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels. So again, there could have been people that were Christians, but they thought angels were equal to Jesus. Who knows? But he's trying to set the record straight here. So let's move on here and look at verse 4 now. Jesus Christ is greater than the angels, and here's why. Let's look at some reasons. His first one, he says, is Jesus is called the Son of God. We know that. We say that all the time. Jesus is God's Son. Jesus is the Son of God. If you you know know the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we know that. That's that's not you know probably very deep. But here's what he's going to say though. But it's as if because of all the work that Jesus has done and because of who he is, he has inherited that title, the Son of God. Look at verse four with me. 
says, having become as much superior to angels. So setting the record straight, Jesus is superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So Jesus has a higher title, a higher position than angels. And in verse 5, I think is the answer. He says, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? God never said to any angel, I'll consider you as my son. Never did he say that. Never did God call any other being his son. But when he looked to God the Son, the word from all eternity, he says, you are my son. Jesus is called the Son of God. Now here's what's interesting as we go through all of this. It is God the Father talking to Jesus Christ. So from verse 5 down to 14, I'm going to read through this and we're going to go through it. Just keep in your mind, this is God The writer here is saying this is the Father, God the Father, talking to Jesus Christ, saying these things about him. So he he makes a case here. So it's a rhetorical question. Has God ever called an angel his son? Well, no, of course not. Well, here's what he does. He quotes Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. I won't read it to you, but you can write that down. In Psalm 2, verse 7, the writer pulls on that psalm that in the old days of Israel, when they had a king and a new king would take the throne, it was thought that the king would recite Psalm chapter 2. But the writer here says that's not the point of Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2 was pointing ahead to the real king that would sit on God's throne, Jesus the Christ. And in that Psalm chapter 2, God says to the king that's being appointed, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And then he quotes from 2 Samuel 7 verse 14, here at the end of verse 5 when he says or again or meaning in another place i will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son when god talked to david in second samuel remember king david he wanted to build a temple and god said you're not going to build a temple your son will you know his son was solomon in second samuel 7 god gave a promise to david said your son who comes after you will build the temple and you will have a son sit on the throne of israel for all eternity But if you fast forward through the story, yes, Solomon came along after David, his literal son, and built the temple. But if you know Solomon's story, he did not end well. He ended in judgment. He fell away from faithfulness to God. So then the rest of the Old Testament was looking forward to another son of David who would sit on the eternal throne of God. Guess who that was? Jesus the Christ. Jesus came from David's family tree. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, let me make this case for you. Angels are wonderful, but Jesus is greater. He is called God's son. It's found in Psalm 2 and it's found in 2 Samuel 7. And again, just to stress the point, he's trying to get them to see no other creature was ever referred to as the son of God. So now then here in verse 5, I want to draw your attention to one more thing here so we're not confused. It says, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I'm sorry, I need to go to verse 4. Verse 4, back up. Having become as much superior to angels. I just want to make one quick note, we'll move on, because it could be confusing, that phrase, having become. See, some people have thought, oh, well, that means that Jesus used to not be, but then he became. That's not what this means. In the Greek languages, this is uh, written in, Having become can mean that you were made. You used to not exist, but now you do exist. However, it can also mean, though, something else. It can mean that you have now become into, you've come into a new state 
a new title, a new category that you weren't in before. So the writer isn't saying for a second that Jesus used to not exist and then he did exist. That's not what he's saying. He's rather saying that Jesus attained to a different status. When Jesus was God the Word from all eternity, and then he took on human flesh through the virgin birth, something happened of eternal significance. Jesus now took on a new role. He became God the Son. Now, I believe he's always been God the Son, sort of, but he took on another level of being God's Son by actually coming to this earth and being born of a woman, conceived of the Holy Spirit, and he lived as a real human being. I believe the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, Jesus, when he did those things, he earned some stuff. He inherited the title Son of God. He became higher than the angels. He always was. But practically from a human level, he's a new category now. He's the Son of God. So moving on in verse 6 now. The second reason why Jesus is greater than the angels, Jesus is to be worshipped by the angels. So Jesus is to be worshipped by the angels. In verse 6 it says, And again, when he brings, that's God, the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. So why is Jesus greater than angels? Because angels have to worship him. He doesn't worship the angels. Now the writer here is drawing again from the Old Testament. That's going to be every time. From Psalm 97, verse 7. I won't fully read that. And probably Deuteronomy chapter 32, 43. So Psalm 97, 7 and Deuteronomy 32, 43 just want to draw that out to you he's again pulling on this old testament stuff to prove to these people jesus is greater more evidence that jesus is equal to god and higher than the angels now it could be that he's also making a reference to luke luke chapter 2 starting in verse 8 if you remember the birth of jesus the angels appeared to the shepherds in the field and it says they were worshiping god and giving glory for the savior that had been born maybe he's referring to that was an event when the angels had to worship jesus but I want to draw your attention to something here interesting in verse 6. He says, again, when he brings the firstborn into the world. The word firstborn. Again, that can be very tricky. And I, I, don't, I don't want us to try to get lost here, but I do want to explain this. I think it's important. I, I apologize, like I told you. This is a Bible study more than it is a sermon. But look at this word firstborn and hang with me for a moment. If we're not careful, the word firstborn can make us think that Jesus did not exist before he was born of the Virgin Mary. And you could think that, well, he was Mary's firstborn, literal son, so he must be meaning that Jesus is the firstborn in that way. That's not the case. The word firstborn here can mean chronological birth. It can mean you have more than one child and you literally have your firstborn child. They were born first, in order. It can mean that. But it can also mean something else. It can mean that you have special status associated with being the first child. In Jewish society, if you were the firstborn, you got double inheritance from your parents over the other children because you had double responsibility in the family. The firstborn child of a Jewish family had, had a lot more that they were leaned on for. They had a lot more that they had to do. They were a lot more responsible on behalf of the parents for the rest of their brothers and sisters. They got more too. But that is the word here being used. This idea of status. First priority status. So we can say several things here about Jesus. When you're reading your Bible and you interpret it, if you ever find a spot in the Bible and you say, I'm not sure how to interpret this, what do I do? There's a couple of rules to follow. The first one is this. 
let the Bible interpret itself. Let the Bible interpret the Bible. So if you're reading one part here and you think this is confusing, let other parts of the Bible that you know help you interpret that part of the Bible. So here's what I mean by that. We could read right here and think, oh, Jesus is the firstborn. That means he must have been created by God and then he was born by Mary or he couldn't be called the firstborn. That's not what it means. How do we know that? Because the entire rest of the Bible says otherwise. The rest of Scripture teaches us that Jesus has existed from all eternity. He existed before the virgin birth. That was not when he started to exist. He is God, equal to God. He's God the Son. John 1, chapter 1 is clear on this. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then John 1, 14, the Word took on flesh. That's Jesus. But Jesus has always existed before he dwelt on earth as a man. So we know from the rest of Scripture that right here in Hebrews, he cannot mean Jesus used to not be, but then he was, as in God created him somehow. That can't be what he means. Another rule when uh, following or trying to interpret Scripture here is let the context teach you what you should think about the passage. Context is the section you're in in that book. So we're right here in a section here of Hebrews, and we need to let the letter of Hebrews guide us for how we should think about this word firstborn. Well, I can tell you this, the whole letter is all about how Jesus is God and is equal to God and is greater than anything else ever known. So that alone gives us our answer. He cannot mean that Jesus is literally a firstborn son that used to not exist until he was born out. That's not what he can mean. He must mean something else. So, again, remember, Jesus receives worship just like God does. Throughout the Gospels, people would worship Jesus, and I cannot find it recorded where he ever told them to stop. If Jesus were less than God by him being some sort of created being after the fact, when God created everything else, or if Jesus only existed when he was birthed out by Mary, that would be idolatry if Jesus received worship. But that's not true. That means Jesus is equal to God. He is God. So we have to think about firstborn in another way. So here's how I think we should think about this. Jesus is not the firstborn, meaning the first creature or being created by God. I want you to know some people think that. It's very unfortunate. But some people read this and think, well, this means Jesus was created by the Father. He was just the first thing created by the Father. Sure, he's powerful. He's like God, but he's not equal to God. He's not on the same level. He's a little lower because he's the first one created. But again, that cannot be what he means because the rest of the Bible tells us otherwise. So here's what I think is going on. When Jesus set aside his glory in heaven and decided he would come down on this earth through the Virgin Mary, he set aside that glory to live as a real human being. We have to keep something straight in our heads, and it's hard to get, I know. He is God, but when he was here walking around as Jesus, he was at the same time a real living, breathing human being. He started out as a baby. He grew into a toddler. He became a teenager. He became a young adult. He had to eat. He had to sleep. He walked like everyone else walked, except for the on water part. But within reason, he walked like everyone else walked. He was a real human being is the point. Now, he was God in human flesh, but no less human than you or me, except without sin. Because of that fact, I believe that's how we can understand what he's getting at about Jesus here. Jesus can be called the Son of God because he's always existed. 
God did not literally birth Jesus out. That's not the point. Well, then how is he called the firstborn or the son of God? Because when he took on that human flesh, he went through a full birth cycle, life cycle, just like every human being does. And in that regard, we can say he was really a human. And God now looks at Jesus and says, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Not literally created him, but Jesus now has that title because of what he did, the work that he did. So Jesus was the God-man. He came down, lived as a human, but was really God. So all of this is just to try to make sure we don't get confused about Jesus. This is where, unfortunately, some other people get Jesus wrong. Um, There's groups out there. Jehovah's Witnesses would be one, as nice as they are. Mormons would be one, as nice as they are. I've known some very nice people, but they're so confused on this point about Jesus. They believe he was created by the Father and is a lesser being. Powerful as though he may be, he is not God. And they'll therefore say he's not worthy to be fully worshipped. The writer of Hebrews says otherwise. Jesus is worthy of worship because he is God. And he has the title Son of God. So he's greater than the angels. Now again here, we'll move on. So why is Jesus greater than the angels? He's inherited the name of God's Son. And he's to be worshipped by the angels. He doesn't worship the angels. The third point Jesus has an eternal throne. So if you look with me in verse 7, he makes another point. They're just kind of rapid fire. But in verse 7, he says, Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Verse 8, but, but of the Son. So of the angels, God calls them ministers. Minister just means servant. So here I am, you could call me minister. That's actually nothing fancy. Minister just means servant. I'm a servant of the word of God, of the gospel of God. That's all a minister is. And he's saying here, angels are ministers of God. They serve at God's bidding. But the comparison in verse 8, but of the Son, that's Jesus, he says, this is God saying about Jesus, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. So in verse 8, it's interesting here. What do we learn about Jesus? God the Father calls Jesus God. Because look at verse 8. This is God talking, God the Father, to Jesus. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Jesus is considered a king. God who is a king, God sitting on a throne. And here God the Father says about him, your throne is forever. It never ends. Jesus has an eternal throne. His kingdom never stops. It will never stop. His throne has no limits to where his power goes. Verse 9, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. If you're taking notes, I'll just share this with you. He's quoting again from Psalm chapter 45, verses 6 and 7. He just, he's going to keep doing that over and over. So Psalm 45, 6 and 7, he uses to make a case that, look, God is talking about Jesus and says he is God and he has an eternal throne. It never, ever stops. Angels are never spoken of in that way. Angels don't sit on a throne. Angels don't have a kingdom that they rule over. Angels are servants at God's behest, his bidding. Jesus, though, is called son. He is called king, sits on an eternal throne. And then the next point, Jesus is eternal Lord. Jesus is eternal Lord. In verse 10, he says, You, again, this is the Father talking about Jesus, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, 
and the heavens are the work of your hands. So we kind of went through this last week. But the New Testament says that, yes, God created the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1. But who was it that God had carry out the actual acts of creation? It was Jesus. It was the Son of God. And here again he's saying it was the Lord Jesus that laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the works of Jesus' hands. And in verse 11, they will perish. So all of this planet and all this stuff, it's going to roll away one day. It'll decay and go out and God's going to just do away with it and have a new heaven, new earth. But look at what else he says. But you, meaning you, Jesus, remain. They, they being all the stuff that we see, the planets and all the things of this life, they wear out, they go away. But you, Jesus, never wear out. He says in verse 11, they all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you, Jesus, are the same and your years will have no end. Jesus does not grow old. He doesn't age. He doesn't die. He doesn't have a stopping point. Even when he did die, he come back three days later. That is who Jesus is. Angels are not that. Angels are spiritual beings. That's true. Angels are eternal beings, the Bible says even. But the thing is, angels were created by God. They had a starting point. They may not have an ending point. They're eternal. The book of Revelation says even the demons will be thrown into the lake for all eternity, the lake of fire and hell and brimstone and all that stuff. But they'll go on for all eternity. But they had a beginning point. Jesus never had a beginning point. He's eternal. He goes eternal into the past and eternal into the future. He's greater than the angels. But the point here for us, he's trying to say is, recognize this about Jesus. He sits on an eternal throne and he is Lord. He is God. He's not less than God. And Jesus himself is eternal. He will never grow old and die. He will never fade away. Now, one thing I want to point out here that I I just personally find very reassuring here is how many times in your life have people let you down? How many times have you let people down? I know I have. We make mistakes, right? That's obvious. We're going to let people down. I let people down. As your pastor, as we keep going here, I'm sorry, but I'll just tell you in advance, I'm going to make a mistake and I'll let you down. And I'm I'm going to tell you I'm sorry and I'm not going to mean it, but it's going to happen. We're going to let each other down at times. That's what happens. But we're human, right? But here's the thing I love about this verse. When he says here that Jesus is the same, that is so impactful to me because Jesus will never let you down. Why? Because he never changes. He can't make a mistake. He can't grow old and start forgetting things and forget you or forget me. He doesn't even have that ability. He doesn't grow old. He doesn't say today, I will treat you this way, but tomorrow I'll change my mind. I just don't like you or I'll gossip about you, or I'll do this about you. He'll never do those things. He's the same. And that's a wonderful thing. Because that means you can always 200% count and depend on Jesus. So when you're reading in your Bible, the stuff he said in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the stuff the apostles said about him, you can take it to the bank. It's more sure than any bank. It's true. It's valid, and it will never let you down. So he says again, you're the same. Your years will have no end. Jesus is our Lord, but he's eternal. He never stops. He's always going to be our Lord and our God. He's quoting here from Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. Again, if you're just taking notes, Psalm 102, 25 and 27. And here's the final point, and we'll wrap up. Now he moves on and says this, Jesus sits at the Father's right hand. So if you look at verse 13, again, a rhetorical question. 
To which of the angels has God ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Well, the answer is none of them. God has never said to an angel, come here and sit at my right right hand, sit at the seat next to me, and all your enemies I'll conquer and subdue, and it'll be like you're propping your foot upon them, like a footstool. Well, the answer is never. God's never said that to anyone else except for whom? Jesus Christ. That's his point here. Jesus, the Son of God, is sitting at the right hand of the Father, and God says to him, you will sit here until we wrap up this earthly program and we put down all sin and rebellion and all the enemies of God will be paraded before him. Judgment will be pronounced and rendered and it will be as if Jesus gets to sit back in a recliner and his footstool was all of his enemies. No other creature did God ever say that about. Jesus, God's son, the eternal God, God in the flesh, equal to God, but it's God the Father saying to the Son, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool. So, Again, Jesus is greater than the angels. How so? Jesus is called the Son of God. No other being is referred to as the Son of God but Jesus, meaning he is God, equal to God. Because again, think of it too like this. Your children are no less human than you, right? Now, they might act less human than us sometimes. But practically, biologically speaking, they're no less human than their parents. They're equally human with us, right? That's kind of the same concept here when you read Jesus is God's son. And we're saying he's equal to God the Father because he's equal in nature with God. He is God. So God can refer to Jesus, you're my son. You're one of me. You're a part of me. You're in this Godhead here of three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But no angel, no human being has ever been called God's son except for Jesus the Christ. And the next thing was, Jesus is the one worshipped. Jesus doesn't worship anyone or anything else. The angels have to worship Jesus. And again, Jesus has an eternal throne. Any powerful governing president, king, monarchy, whatever they may be, will always have a limit to their power. Either their term is over and they have to step aside, or either the borders of their country stop and they can't go any farther. Jesus sits on a throne with no borders, no boundaries, no term limits. It never ends. He will always be on that throne reigning. Jesus is eternal Lord. He's God, always has been, always will be. He's the same. He will never change and let you or me down. And he sits at the right hand of the Father until he subdues all of his enemies. And that was found, I don't think I said this, Psalm chapter 110, verse 1. And I'll just end with saying this. I know that that's more of a Bible study, but let's just think of it like this. This writer was trying to get his readers and us today still in 2022 to understand this. Jesus Christ is far greater, far superior than anything we could ever fathom. Just when you think you've got Jesus figured out, I think the Bible will come in and say you don't yet. Here's one more thing. Here's one more thing about the wonderful nature of Jesus, about what he's done for us because of who he is. God, I mean, picture this. God stepped down from everything he had up there in his eternal throne from eternity past. But God the Son stepped down and said, I will carry out the plan of salvation on behalf of God the Father and secure salvation for any human being that wants to put their faith in me. Any human can call out to God and say, God, I know I'm a sinner. I need to confess of my sins. Jesus, forgive me by your sacrifice on the cross. And then when he rose again, the Bible says that was proof that he can give you eternal life. He said he can do it and he will do it. Even though we may die here, will reign again with him, will live forever 
with him. No matter what goes on here in this life, whatever pressure we may feel from society, maybe it's even family or friends, for you to maybe try to hide some of your Christianity. I get it. I've been to events where I'm thinking, you know, it'd be a lot easier if I just don't let people know who I am. I've been there too. Especially now as a pastor, if I'm honest with you, I'll have times where talking to people, you know, like, oh, what do you do? And it's like, oh, I'm a pastor. And people are like, okay, well, we're done here. <laughs> like, why do, I, why do I want to talk to you? You know, they haven't actually said that, but the, the mood is very much down. And I used to not get that. And so now I'm thinking, you know, there's something to this where people just at times, they, they don't want to talk to a pastor. They don't want to be around a pastor. And I have had times where it's like, you know, would it, I get what they're going through. Maybe, maybe not fully what they're going through, to be honest. I haven't been persecuted physically. But we've had times where we were for honest, been at an event, been around certain people. It's easier to kind of pull back, not always talk about you going to church, not always talking about the things that you're believing about. It's easier just to keep quiet. But know this, no matter what pressure you feel, don't give up. Don't hold back from expressing who Jesus is to you as your Lord and Savior. Why? Because he's greater than angels. Why does that matter? Because angels are pretty powerful creatures, pretty powerful beings, and yet Jesus is greater than them. So he's saying to them, you can worship no higher person, no higher thing. You can't commit your life to anyone else or anything else that would give you greater reward and peace than Jesus Christ. So don't stop. Don't hold back. I pray this morning you know him as your Lord and Savior. I'll pray with us and let Bruce and them come. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for my sins, for everyone's sins. And I mean it, Lord. I, if there's someone here that has thought maybe that they were saved, that maybe they were right with God, would you speak to their heart right now if they're not, Lord? Convict and convince them and show them that it is only by our faith, our true dependence and faith from our hearts, believing we're sinners, confessing that to you, and believing Jesus really died in our place on the cross. And because you rose again three days later, we too can have eternal life. God, thank you for the letter of Hebrews. It's very deep. It has a lot of mysteries. But Lord, I, I pray as we leave here, would you just remind us, let these thoughts be on our minds as we go throughout our lives, that no matter what's going on, good or bad, Jesus is reigning on that eternal throne. He is our God. He's our Savior. He's greater than anything. Holy Spirit, would you give us boldness that no matter what life throws at us, we'll press on and stay faithful to express our faith in Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, again, just for being who you are. And in your name I pray. Amen.